Chapter ninety six, part two of Barney the Vampire, volume two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Barney the Vampire, volume two by Thomas Prescott Prest. Chapter ninety six, part two. By this time the matter had begun to get brooded about in the town, and of course it went from mouth to mouth with many exaggerations and although it by no means did follow that a murder had been committed because a dead body had been found, yet such was the universal impression, and the matter began to be talked about as the murder in the subterranean passage leading to Andebury House, with all the gusto which the full particulars of some deed of blood was calculated to inspire, and how it spread about was thus. The fact was that Mr. Leake was so anxious to let Anderbury on the mount to the rich Baron Stolmoyer of Salzburg, that he got a friend of his to come and personate Sir John Westlake, while he, the baron, was looking at the premises, in order to drive him at once to a conclusion upon the matter, so that what made Sir John so very anxious that he should not be called forward in the matter, consisted in the simple fact that he was nothing else than plain Mr. Brown, who kept a hatter's shop in the town. But he could not keep his own counsel, and, instead of holding his tongue, as he ought to have done, about the matter, he told it to every one he met, so that in a short time it was generally known that something serious and startling had occurred in the subterranean passage to Anderbury House, and a great mob of persons thronged the beach in anxious expectation of getting more information on the matter. The men, likewise, who had been ordered by the coroner to remove the body, soon reached the spot, and they gave an increased impetus to the proceedings by opening the door of the subterranean passage, and then looking earnestly along the beach as if in expectation of something or somebody of importance. When eagerly questioned by the mob, for the throng of persons now assembled quite amounted to a mob, to know what they waited for, one of them said, A coffin was to have been brought down to take the body in. This announcement at once removed anything doubtful that might be in the minds of any of them upon the subject, and at once proclaimed the fact not only that there was a dead body, but that if they looked out they would see it forthwith. The throng thickened, and by the time two men were observed approaching with a coffin on their shoulders, there was scarcely anybody left in the town, except a few rare persons indeed, who were not so curious as their neighbors. It was not an agreeable job, even to those men who were not the most particular in the world, to be removing so loathsome a spectacle as that which they were pretty sure to encounter in the ice-well, but they did not shrink from it, and, by setting about it as a duty, they got through it tolerably well. They took with them several large torches, and then, one having descended into the pit, fastened a rope under the arms of the dead man, and so he was hauled out, and placed in the shell that was ready to receive him. They were all surprised at the fresh and almost healthful appearance of the countenance, and it was quite evident to everybody that if any one had known him in life, they could not have the least possible difficulty in recognizing him now that he was no more. And the only appearance of injury which he exhibited was in that dreadful wound which had certainly proved his death, and which was observable in his throat the moment they looked upon him. The crush to obtain a sight of the body was tremendous at the moment it was brought out, and a vast concourse of persons followed it in procession to the town, where the greatest excitement prevailed it was easily discovered that no known person was missing, and some who had caught a sight of the body went so far as to assert that it must have been in the ice-well for years, and that the extreme cold had preserved it in all its original freshness. The news, of course, came round, 
although not through the baron, for he did not condescend to say one word about it in the inn, and it was the landlord who first started the suggestion of, what suppose it is the gentleman who left his horse here? This idea had no sooner got possession of his brain, than it each moment seemed to him to assume a more reasonable and tangible form, and without saying any more to any one else about it, he at once started off to where the body lay awaiting an inquest, to see if his suspicions were correct. When he arrived at the public-house and asked to see the body, he was at once permitted to do so, for the landlord knew him, and was as curious as he could be upon the subject by any possibility. One glance, of course, was sufficient, and the landlord at once said, "'Yes, I have seen him before, though I don't know his name. He came to my house last night and left his horse there, and, although I only saw him for a moment as he passed through the hall, I am certain I am not mistaken.' I dare say all my waiters will recognize him, as well as the Baron Stolmeyer of Salzburg, who is staying with me, and who no doubt knows very well who he is, for he went out with him late and came home alone, and I ordered one of my men to wait up all night in order to let in the very person who is now lying dead before us. The deuce you did! But you don't suppose the Baron murdered him, do you? It's a mystery to me altogether, quite a profound mystery. It's very unlikely, certainly and what's the most extraordinary part of the whole affair is, how the deuce could he come into one of the ice-wells belonging to Andebury House? That's what puzzles me altogether. Well, it will all come out, I hope, at the inquest, which is to be held at four o'clock to-day. There must have been foul play somewhere, but the mystery is where, and that heaven only knows, perhaps. I shall attend, said the landlord, of course, to identify him, and I suppose, unless somebody claims the horse, I may as well keep possession of it. Don't flatter yourself that you will get the horse out of the transaction. Don't you know quite well that the government takes possession of everything as don't belong to nobody? Yes, but I have got him, and possession, you know, is nine points of the law. It may be, but their tenth point will get the better of you for all that. You take my word for it, the horse will be claimed of you, but I don't mind, as an old acquaintance, putting you up to a dodge. In what way? Why, I'll tell you what happened with a friend of mine, and don't think it was me, for if it was I would tell you at once, so don't think it. He kept a country public-house, and one day an elderly gentleman came in and appeared to be unwell. He just uttered a word or two and then dropped down dead. He happened to have in his fob a gold repeater that was worth at least a hundred guineas, and my friend, before anybody came, took it out and popped in, in its stead, an old watch that he had, which was not worth a couple of pounds. It was running a risk. It was, but it turned out very well, because the old gentleman happened to be a very eccentric person and was living alone, so that his friends really did not know what he had or what he had not, but took it for granted that any watch produced belonged to him. So if I were you in this case, when the gentleman's horses claimed, I'd get the darndest old screw I could and let them have that. You would? Indeed would I, and glory in it, too, as the very best thing that could be done. Now, a horse is of use to you? I believe ye it is. Exactly, but what's the use of it to government? And, what's more, if it went to the government, there might be some excuse. But the government will know no more about it, and make not so much as I shall. Some jack-in-office will lay hold of it as a thing of course, and a perquisite, when you might just as well, and a great deal better, too, keep it yourself, for it would do you some good, as you say, and none to them. 
I'll do it. It is a good and a happy thought. There is no reason on earth why I shouldn't do it, and I will. I have made up my mind to it now. Well, I am glad you have. What do you think now the dead man's horse is worth? Oh, fifty or sixty guineas value. Then very good. Then, when the affair is all settled, I will trouble you for twenty pounds. You? Yes, to be sure. Who else do you suppose is going to interfere with you? One is enough, ain't it, at a time. And I think, after giving you such advice as I have, that I am entitled at all events to something. I'll tell you what, said the landlord of the hotel. Taking all things into consideration, I have altered my mind rather, and won't do it. Very good, you need not. Only mind if you do, I am down upon you like a shot. The excitement contingent upon the inquest was very great. Indeed, the large room in the public house where it was held was crowded to suffocation with persons who were anxious to be present at the proceedings. When the landlord reached home, of course he told his guest, the baron, of the discovery he had made, that the murdered man was the strange visitor of the previous night, for now, from the frightful wound he had received in his throat, the belief that he was murdered became too rational a one to admit of any doubts, and was that which was universally adopted in preference to any other suggestion upon the occasion, although, no doubt, people would be found who would not scruple to aver that he had cut his own throat after making his way into the well belonging to Anderbury House. The landlord had his own misgivings concerning his guest, the baron, now that something had occurred of such an awful and mysterious a nature to one who was evidently known to him. It did not seem to be a pleasant thing to have such an intimate friend of a man who had been murdered in one's house, especially when it came to be considered that he was the last person seen in his company, and that, consequently, he was peculiarly called upon to give an explanation of how, and under what circumstances, he had parted with him. The baron was sitting smoking in the most unconcerned manner in the world, when the landlord came to bring him this intelligence, and, when he had heard him to the end, the remark he made was, Really, you very much surprise me, but perhaps, as you are better acquainted with the town than I am, you can tell me who he was? Why, sir, that is what we hoped you would be able to tell us. How should I tell you? He introduced himself to me as a Mr. Mitchell, a surveyor, and he said that, hearing I talked of purchasing or renting Anderbury on the Mount, he came to tell me that the principal sidewall that you could see from the beach was off the perpendicular. Indeed, sir. Yes, and as this was a very interesting circumstance to me, considering that I really did contemplate such a purchase or renting, and do so still, as it was a moonlit night, and he said he could show me in a minute what he meant if I would accompany him, I did so. But when we got there, and on the road, I heard quite enough of him to convince me he was a little out of his senses, and, consequently, I paid no more attention to what he said, but walked home and left him on the beach. It's a most extraordinary circumstance, sir. There is no such person, I assure you, as Mitchell, a surveyor, in the town, so I can't make it out in the least. But I tell you, I consider the man out of his senses, and perhaps that may account for the whole affair. Oh, yes, sir, that would, certainly. But still, it's a very odd thing, because we don't know of such a person at all, and it does seem so extraordinary that he should have made his appearance all of a sudden in this sort of way. I suppose, sir, that you will attend the inquest now that's to be held upon him? Oh, yes, I have no objection whatever to that. Indeed, I feel myself bound to do so, because I suppose mine is the last evidence that can be at all produced concerning him. 
Unquestionably, sir, our coroner is a very clever man, and you will be glad to know him, very glad to know him, sir, and he will be glad to know you, so I am sure it will be a mutual gratification. It's at four o'clock the inquest is to be, and I dare say, sir, if you are there by half-past, it will be time enough. No doubt of that, but I will be punctual. We have already said that the room in which the inquest was to be held was crowded almost to suffocation, and not only was that the case, but the lower part of the house was crammed with people likewise, and there can be very little doubt but the baron would have shrunk from such an investigation from a number of curious eyes if he could have done so, while the landlord of the house would have had no objection, as far as his profit was concerned in the sale of a great quantity of beer and spirits, to have had such an occurrence every day in the week if possible. The body lay still in the shell where it had been originally placed. After it had been viewed by the jury, and almost every one had remarked upon the extraordinary fresh appearance it wore, they proceeded at once to the inquiry, and the first witness who appeared was Mr. Leake, who deposed to have been in company with some gentlemen viewing Anderbury House, and to have found the body in one of the ice-wells of that establishment. This evidence was corroborated by that of Davis, who had so unexpectedly jumped into the well, without being aware that it contained already so disagreeable a visitor as it did in the person of the murdered man, regarding the cause of whose death the present inquiry was instituted. Then the landlord identified the body as that of a gentleman who had come to his house on horseback, and who had afterwards walked out with Baron Stolmeyer of Salzburg, who was one of his guests. "'Is that gentleman in attendance?' said the coroner. "'Yes, sir, he is.' I told him about it, and he has kindly come forward to give all the evidence in his power concerning it. There was a general expression of interest and curiosity when the baron stepped forward, attired in his magnificent coat, trimmed with fur, and tendered his evidence to the coroner, which, of course, was precisely the same as the statement he had made to the landlord of the house, for, as he had made up such a well-connected story, he was not likely to prevaricate or to depart from it in the smallest particular. He was listened to with breathless attention, and, when he had concluded, the coroner, with a preparatory hum, said to him, "'And you have reason to suppose, sir, that this person was out of his senses?' "'It seemed to me so. He talked wildly and incoherently, and in such a manner as to fully induce such a belief.' "'You left him on the beach?' "'I did. I found when I got there that it was only a very small portion, indeed, of Anderbury House that was visible.' and, although the moon shone brightly, I must confess I did not see myself any signs of deviation from the perpendicular, and, such being the case, I left the spot at once, because I could have no further motive in staying, and, moreover, it was not pleasant to be out at night with a man whom I thought was deranged. I regretted, after making this discovery, that I had come from home on such a fool's errand, but as, when one is going to invest a considerable sum of money in any enterprise, one is naturally anxious to know all about it. I went, little suspecting that the man was insane. Did you see him after that? Certainly not, until today, when I recognized in the body that has been exhibited to me the same individual. Gentlemen, said the coroner to the jury, it appears to me that this is a most mysterious affair. The deceased person has a wound in his throat, which, I have no doubt, you will hear from a medical witness has been the cause of death and the most singular part of the affair is how, if he inflicted it upon himself, he has managed to dispose of the weapon with which he did the deed. The last person seen in his company, said one of the jury, 
was the baron, and I think he is bound to give some better explanation of the affair. I am yet to discover, said the baron, that the last person who acknowledges to having been in the company of a man afterwards murdered must of necessity be the murderer? Yes, but how do you account, sir, for there being no weapon found by which the man could have done the deed himself? I don't account for it at all. How do you? This is irregular, said the coroner. Call the next witness. This was a medical man, who briefly stated that he had seen the deceased, and that the wound in his throat was amply sufficient to account for his death, that it was inflicted with a sharp instrument having an edge on each side. This, then, seemed to conclude the case, and the coroner remarked, Gentlemen of the jury, I think this is one of those peculiar cases in which an open verdict is necessary, or else an adjournment without date, so that the matter can be resumed at any time, if fresh evidence can be procured concerning it. There is no one accused of the offence, although it appears to me impossible that the unhappy man could have committed the act himself. We have no reason to throw the least shade of suspicion or doubt upon the evidence of the Baron Stolmeyer of Salzburg, for as far as we know anything of the matter, the murdered man may have been in the company of a dozen people after the Baron left him. A desultory conversation ensued, which ended in an adjournment of the inquest, without any future day being mentioned for its reassembling, and so the Baron Stolmeyer entirely escaped from what might have been a very serious affair to him. It did not, however, appear to shake him in his resolution of taking Andebury on the mount, although Mr. Leake very much feared it would, but he announced to that gentleman his intention fully of doing so, and told him to get the necessary papers drawn up forthwith. I hope, he said, within a few weeks' time to be fairly installed in that mansion, and then I will trouble you, Mr. Leake, to give me a list of the names of all the best families in the neighborhood, for I intend giving an entertainment on a grand scale in the mansion and grounds. Sir, said Mr. Leake, I shall, with the greatest pleasure, attend upon you in every possible way in this affair. It is a very excellent neighborhood, and you will have no difficulty, I assure you, sir, in getting together an extremely capital and creditable assemblage of persons. There could not be a better plan devised for at once introducing all the people who are worth knowing to you. I thank you, said the baron. I think the place will suit me well, and, as the baroness Stolmeyer of Salzburg is dead, I have some idea of marrying again, and therefore it becomes necessary and desirable that I should be well acquainted with the surrounding families of distinction in this neighborhood. It was a hint not at all likely to be thrown away upon Mr. Leake, who was the grand gossip-monger of the place, and he treasured it up in order to see if he could not make something of it which would be advantageous to himself. He knew quite enough of the select and fashionable families in that neighborhood to be fully aware that neither the baron's age nor his ugliness would be any bar to his forming a matrimonial alliance. There is not one of them, he said to himself, who would not marry the very devil himself and be called the Countess Lucifer, or any name of the kind, always provided there was plenty of money, and that the baron has without doubt, so it is equally without doubt he may pick and choose where he pleases. This was quite correct of Mr. Leake, and showed his great knowledge of human nature, and we entertain with him a candid opinion that if the baron Stolmeyer of Salzburg had been ten times as ugly as he was, and heaven knows that was needless, he might pick and choose a wife almost when he pleased. This is a general rule, and as, of course, to all general rules there are exceptions, this one cannot be supposed to be free from them. Under all circumstances, and in all classes of society, 
there are single-minded beings who consult the pure dictates of their own hearts, and who, disdaining those things which make up the amount of the ambition of meaner spirits, stand aloof as bright and memorable examples to the rest of human nature. Such a being was Flora Bannerworth. She would never have been found to sacrifice herself to the fancied advantages of wealth and station, but would have given her heart and hand to the true object of her affection, although a sovereign prince had made the endeavor to wean her from it. End of chapter 96